I'm Alex Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All. Very excited today to have guest speaker Mike Hayes, an amazing background. I'm going to do my best here, Mike, to just kind of uh, do, do a very high level on it. He's a former Navy SEAL. Uh, he also spent a little bit of time at Bridgewater. He worked at the White House negotiating nuclear treaties with Russia. Now he's the chief digital transformation officer uh, at VMware and, and has just published an amazing book called Never Enough. Uh, Mike, so great to have you with us. Alex, the pleasure is mine. Thanks for all the impact that you've had in the world. You've got quite a, uh, quite a program and it's an honor to be here. I'm, I've got the book here, Never Enough. Um, uh, you know, the first point I wanted to make, and, and I know that, you know, this is actually in, kind of in, in the prologue of the book, right? Is that you've created a nonprofit around this. You're, you, you're donating all the proceeds from this to Gold Star Families. You've, uh, how many houses have you paid off already? I mean, it's such an amazing uh, initiative that you've got with this book here. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking, Alex. We've paid off five houses so far. We, there's no website, no fanfare, just a very quiet, confidential 501c3. I, I know way too many uh, Gold Star families, as, as many SEALs as every SEAL of my era does. And so now it's really in this, about giving back, which is exactly why I wrote the book on so many different levels. It's very inspirational, which is a great tie-in to, you know, to the book, Never Enough. I, I had a great time uh, you know, pouring through this. It really is just such a kind of positive, uplifting read. Uh, so, so important, especially uh, in today's time. How would you describe what, what you mean? And I've got some bullets here on you know, how you break down Never Enough and these kinds of things. But you know, how did you come away with why you called it Never Enough? What, you know, what is that at a high level that you're trying to get at there? Well, Never Enough sounds like fame and fortune. It's absolutely not. It's about meaning and impact. And what I deeply believe is that the more we work on our foundation, the more that we lean into hard things, the more we realize that that failure is only fail if we fail and don't learn. You know, it, 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 and we we're always we're always working to give more than we take. And so for me, it is truly about meaning and impact. That's the, it's not more complicated than that. You've done that, obviously. You know, uh, uh, in a in a kinetic way, but also in, in, in the non-kinetic areas that you drove that. You were talking about Afghanistan and all the things you were doing from a community building standpoint. You've done that in a, in a political arena, and, and obviously you've done that now in, in a commercial domain. There, there's three kind of pillars I, that I thought was interesting in terms of how you broke that out. And, and you kind of broke it out into this idea of never excellent enough, never agile enough, uh, and never meaningful enough. You know, what, what's, what's the context around why you broke it down that way and, and how you were able to kind of condense so much of that complexity into, in, into some of that structure? Well, you're asking what was the hardest question about the book, Alex. It was how to organize all of these stories in this crazy life that I've had. I like to say that I've, I've lived, uh, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of once in a lifetime experiences, some which I, I you know, was very fortunate to have and some that I was less fortunate to have, but through all of it learned. And so as I organized and did a lot of the thinking around the book, the first thing that came the, the, that came to me was really the, the concept of, of you're only excellent if you know you're never excellent enough. It has nothing to do with age or hierarchy or anything other than just what's inside your heart and your head. It, are we always leaning into things and trying to become better? 
who cares if we, we, we succeed or we fail? What matters is are we leaning into that and taking that hard path? Uh, we could talk about what, a lot about that topic itself, but the, uh, the, the foundation ultimately is about, uh, about that excellence because the, the, the more solid we are, the more we can give back. It, it's kind of like whether you're, um, well, well we, let me just answer your question at a high level and go wave tops across the, because there's so much we could be talking about. The, the, the next third really is the concept of agility, chapters four, five, and six. I think agility is one of the most important concepts because it's uh, it's landing in situations that you may not be familiar with, which is almost everything in life. You know, and then how do you deal with that? How do you deal with ambiguity and uncertainty? And look at the hard year that year plus now that not just the the nation but the whole globe has had. How do we deal with with figuring out what do we try to be? What are the outcomes? What are the strategies to get there and, and then the, the execution along the way? How's our, our mental outlook? And, you know, a, a really wise person, John Whitehead, uh, is, a, is a friend of mine. He passed away a few years ago. He was a CEO of Goldman Sachs. He was deputy secretary of state under Schultz, chaired the 9-11 reconstruction uh, of, of Manhattan, post 9-11 Manhattan reconstruction. An incredible human being was also one of the ship drivers at Normandy back in June 6th, 44. And, um, and just a wise, wise man. And he said, Mike, whenever and whenever you're having a bad day, go find somebody who's having a harder day and go help that person. And that always stuck with me. And that's that agility of like, do you get bogged down in where you are or, or can you get up and, and keep moving and driving forward? And then the last third, which I think is candidly what the first, the first and the second third, the, the, first, the first through six chapters kind of lead into the most important, which is really about meaning and impact. Why are we here? What gives us energy? I've hired lots and lots of senior people in, in multiple firms and, uh, and then and coached lots of you know, college kids on life and things like that. And I always break it down to, to really three circles. It's what gives you energy? What are you good at? And then what does an organization need? And the only acceptable outcome is to thread the needle, thread the, the, the center of that Venn diagram. And really what we can often miss is that, 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 set, that circle of what gives us energy. And that's ultimately, the more we're getting our energy, the more we can give energy back to others and make the, the country, our families, our, our city, states, towns, uh, country, globe, a, a lot better. So sorry, a little bit of a long answer, but there's so much in there. A lot of great stuff in there. I mean, you know, to me, it, it, it was it's such a positive message to say, look, whatever you do, you know, you had the lesson to your, to your daughter, right? Like, don't have a great day, make it a great day. Right. Like whatever you do, whatever you set your mind to, you can accomplish it. And I don't care, you know, as your parent, what, you know, what, what did you do? I mean, within some boundaries, but um, whatever it is that you want to do, as long as you're putting your all into it and you're always pushing yourself. Right. And I think that's kind of that never enough mantra. Then then you will live a fulfilling life. Right. Like you will be happy. And I think that was one of your points that, you know, the. You, you've worked for some of the richest people in the world. You've been in the room with them, right? And like, you've kind of seen what makes, what makes people happy when you have everything it is or nothing, right? And, and what gives you that fulfillment? And that's kind of this never enough mantra. Is that, is that right? Billion, bajillion percent accurate. And so I was fortunate to spend a year as a White House fellow in 2008, 2009. And um, in that program, you spend a year with 13, 13 people who are incredibly talented, very diverse backgrounds. 
but we have about 200 lunches, dinners, or whatever events where we get to sit down with somebody who's, you know, the world would judge as incredibly important and incredibly accomplished. And we get to have real human conversations with those people. It's an ask me anything type of environment, Chatham House rules, everything's off the record. You know, White House fellow alumni, there are about 600 or so of us at this point. You know, the program has gone on since in the early 60s. And, um, and Colin Powell was a, a White House fellow. Colin Powell came one day and we got to sit down and, and ask things like, like what, what makes you tick? And, and he said, you know, when I was a White House fellow, I had a guy named Fred Malik. It's a, a gentleman who started Marriott Timeshare, who was my principal in the Office of Management and Budget. So then we asked Fred Malik to visit us a few months later. Fred sat down and said, you know, Mike, um, it's, it, the, I've had a lot of success in life. The world would judge me as, as pretty successful. The times in my life that were most special was when I was serving others. And I think, you know, that's also went to Holy Cross, which is a, a Jesuit school. And that, that orientation of people for others really is what I think life boils down to. We get caught up in the day-to-day -day so frequently. We don't get to look out at the horizon because we're too busy looking at our feet. And um, But when we can pause and take that chi breath and slow life down and look at the horizon, I think we really we realize that we get we as humans are, are, are intrinsically good and we intrinsically want good for others. And that's what one of the themes in Never Enough is to try to help unlock that for people and to try to help make make things better. So uh, absolutely what you said was spot on. And another theme, you know, somewhat to your, I mean, your first and second points about kind of excellence and agility, you know, I thought, that, I mean, there was a number of, you know, really eye-opening stories from from your SEALs days. There was a couple stories in there, which I thought were very interesting, kind of like showing uh, your personal kind of growth as as an individual, right? You had a couple stories in there where you had two commanders uh, that were ordering you to do something. In both scenarios, you felt that you you were reticent about it, and and in and in the first time around, you didn't push back hard enough, right? And in, and in the second one, you did. What were those two stories? You know, how, how would you kind of summarize them? I think you know the ones I'm talking about. And, and, and how does that relate back to these never enough principles? Phenomenally, it's so clear that you've, you've read the story, the, the book very well. The, when, I, when I was a young SEAL, age 25 or 26, I was in charge of a SEAL platoon. Myself and five others were doing special reconnaissance in 1997 in, in Bosnia, Kosovo kind of operating area. And the long, the, the very quick version is that we were in a situation that um, where we should have called a mission. We, we saw something, we got pictures of it. We, we completed our mission. We should have come out of the field. And uh, there's, a, there's a mantra in the SEALs that I learned from people older and wiser than me as I came in that says, if you think you've been compromised, assume you have. And if you have, then exfil. That means exfiltrate and come home. Well, we got told to stay in the field. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. And it was not a SEAL who was overall in charge. And it was a question of whether this young man at 26 pushes back or not. I, I, ultimately, I, I ultimately didn't push back. And we had 19 armed people come hunting us and it could have turned out a lot worse. None of, those, none of the six of us got a scratch. We finished the mission fine, but man alive, it could have turned out much, much, much different. And, um, and so then roll the clock forward until 20, 2012 in Afghanistan, when I was the commanding officer of SEAL Team 2, 15 years later. 
And, um, and so I was in a situation where a, a, a platoon of SEALs and Green Berets collectively were, were, um, were, in my opinion, better off canceling a mission and coming home. The, so I, I canceled it. I, it was 24 hours into a 72 hour mission. I won't get into the conditions on the ground or anything like that, but, but the risk became unnecessary to assume. And said differently, the outcome that this group was going to achieve wasn't worth the risk that they were going to have to take to achieve it. And I, and when this group came home, they were frustrated. They're like, what in the world is, we're supposed to be these, you know, hard and heavy, you know, seals and green braids and we do the hard things. And, and, you know, that's what being older and wiser and being a commander is about is that you've made, you've learned things when you're younger and they inform your decisions as you get older. So, and that's ultimately, like you said, what the book is about is I've bumped through many things that I, I could have, or would have done differently. And that's what I'm really passionate about sharing and what I, what I hope Alex came through in the book. Doing the hard thing is how you win, how you grow, and how you end up getting the most out of life, right? And I, I think that was the thing, what in that second mission in 2012, that was a colonel or a general, that, that you were ultimately having to 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 uh, disobey his his order, right? And And that was that harder path. That's even a different story than the one I was just telling. So it happened multiple times. And so the one you're talking about was a, a mission where uh, I was the final person to decide whether we drop a bomb on buildings or, or enemy. And uh, that's, you know, the SEALs mission is ultimately to stop bad people from doing bad things to good people. Not, you know, and so the, um, on this particular evening, we ended up being very successful kinetically and um, stopping bad people from doing bad things to good people. And the, the, the general said, hey, okay, now you need to go drive in your vehicles and go make sure that no, 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 no innocent bystanders got killed. And we were like, I was like, that's stupid. Like it was three in the morning. We know the area. We know that it just was the dumbest thing that could possibly be, be applied. The macro policy is great. Let's dissuade people from making sure that they do stupid things. I'm all for that. In this, but you have to like everything have have exception management and know uh, what when to say yes and when to say no. That's what I was paid for is to have what's called judgment, which we all know. So in this particular instance, I said, nope, we're not doing it. We're not going to get in our vehicles and go over these roads. It's not smart. The general to cut to the chase again. Spoiler alert for the book, but there's so much other stuff in the book. But the general said, no, okay, I'll send my Afghan uh, counterpart and ask him to go in and check it out. The Afghans went down to this place. The three vehicles. One of them hit an IED and one vehicle got basically vaporized and, and a couple couple folks died. And, um, and then the second vehicle had some people get very badly wounded. All Afghans, no Americans. There were no Americans there because of my decision. And, um, and I'll tell you, Alex, one of the most emotional, po emotionally powerful days that I've ever had was flying to that site 24 or 48 hours later with that Green Beret team that was awesome, amazing Americans. Um, and just sitting down and, and, and saying, uh, walking in with them and, and having silence in the beginning. And one of those guys said, hey, sir, there aren't very many commanders on the planet that would have pushed back and said no to the general. And out of the 16 of us, eight of us, at least four of us, probably eight of us would not be here today if you didn't make the decision you made. We thank you. And I, you know, I tell you, it even closes off the back of my throat right now talking to you, Alex. It's really, it's a really, really, uh, it's, it's, it's indescribably um, powerful. And that's where the, and when I look at why do things like that happen, we're, we have to not be afraid to, um, to take a stance and do what we think is right, even when it's really hard. Those stories are such, such good 
examples. There's many great examples in the book, but you know, never you're, you're never excellent enough, right? You you can always do better. You got to take the harder route. The harder route is to say no, general. <laughs> like this doesn't make sense. I'm on the ground. I'm not going to risk my guys' lives. Also, never agile enough. You talk about how there's a little bit of a challenge with the hierarchy in the military, uh, and that's an ongoing struggle that they have. But you could have been court-martialed and thrown out and all these things for actually disobeying this guy's order. Um, and he never actually gave you credit, which I thought was the the, the funny part of it. Uh, sure, that of course, you'd expect that. But, you know, those principles so strong in this. Um, and, it, and, and it really is such a great testament to, I think, the, the SEALs, the military, our armed forces, the, the values that are instilled in, you know, those service members, right? And, and, and what kind of character that helps build um, in, you know, in that institution. I guess you also talk about Lincoln and, and you know, history and these kinds of things. When, when you look at, uh, when you look at the, the state of our never enoughness in society today, how do you think we would line up against uh, the historical generations of Americans, you know, in, in, in terms of the challenges and tribulations they had to go through? Do you think society is, you know, is up to snuff in our in our never enough kind of ranking or or more to be desired? Uh, have you thought about that at all? Not specifically, but I can I, I think it's a really interesting topic. And here's how I would approach it. First of all, I think uh, we we tend to remember history as easier and better than it was. Think about our own challenges that we've had in life, no matter how old you are and you're listening. Think about the thing that happened five or 10 years ago that you thought at the time was so incredibly hard or terrible. Right now, you might be a little more circumspect and say, hey, I learned from that. You know, and, and so that's, I think, kind of what happens to some degree. So, um, but in the spirit of, of your question, I think that what's really important is, is thinking about process. You know, thinking, and that's what gets missed here a lot. When, when I look at what does the nation need, Look, let's let's be respectful of the fact that we all have different abilities and interests and skills, and we all have different visions for the future. That's what makes us awesome. It's it's kind of like right now we're 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 rightfully talking a lot more about diversity and equity and inclusion in the in the in the workspace. Well, that is amazing, and and one reason we do that is because with a wider variety of inputs, we make better decisions, and so that's we we almost have to build conflict to healthy conflict in our in our system in order to get a bunch of different ideas on the table and make sure the best idea for the the business or the country or whatever the family whatever it is rises to the top now what that means is our forefathers made this nation so that we kind of bump down the road you know half the country wants one thing half the country wants another okay how do we push our ideas and our values forward and then do our very best to have our vision for the future uh, uh, incorporated. But then when that doesn't happen, how do we agree peace, peacefully? How do we still respect the other side? How do we still um, still recognize that, that we're, or we have other opportunities to shape our future? How do we not live life through the rearview mirror, but continue to look through the windshield and just keep looking forward at the future and say, uh, and, and recognize, and I think that right now, um, it, it's it's really an element we, we can always use more of this. And that's one of the, the key themes in the book is how do we respect people who are different than us 
And how do we um, how do we try to create one? I'll say one team, which is either a family or a company or a state or a country. That that's it's really that um, get along with others, but 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 in ways that also are are trying to drive independent views forward for what we need and want. You did that with the Taliban too, right? I mean, you were actually trying to you know build bridges with literally people that that had at the time you know sworn uh, death to America, right? So. <laughs> I mean, you've seen that uh, all over, you know, all over the spectrum uh, of of how can you get people from differing points of view, different ideologies, different belief systems, whatever it is, to kind of come together and work together, right? I have. I've I've been in very many dusty, far corner, you know, villages of the planet uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, but this particular example, Afghanistan where I've stood up at great peril to myself and I've spoken to an entire village of, of 50 to 500 to maybe even more uh, local citizens, which was absolutely unquestionably penetrated by the Taliban. And of course, in the back of your head, you're like, okay, when's that guy gonna, gonna stand up and start shooting um, with a hidden weapon? But like, th- th- we're ready for that. And, um, and but how, how do you communicate to this group that says, look, we have more in common than not. And I, the, I, I painted myself as a, a tribal leader, as a tribal, a, an elder of seals, if you will, an elder of special forces and saying, uh, we've, we've been killing each other for, for a decade. Don't we both want similar things in, in peace and prosperity and, and family and success and, and try to draw that out and, and, and paint what we have in common rather than the differences and focus on, on that commonality and then I had a program where very simply, you know, I was working everything through an interpreter. And I said, look, my, my interpreter has a cell phone. Call this cell phone if you want to talk and, talk and think about reconciliation. We can pay a small stipend and let's get you over on the good side. Let's have you stop fighting. Let's have you, you know, embrace your, your people and come back out of the hills and create a, a shared prosperity. And I've literally done that dozens of times. And we ended up having some success and got several hundred Taliban fighters to reconcile with their government. And, you know, it's just now did did it create a program that that took spread like wildfire across all of Afghanistan? No, we're there for 10 months at a time, but I think I had the right, I think I had a model that worked in my area. That was super interesting. What about the, the, you know, the third kind of principle, the, the meaningful principle here that, uh, you know, on an impact level, we must act to be never meaningful enough, knowing what will make the biggest difference for the people in our lives and in our communities to that point, right? And potentially on an even larger scale. And when you talked about uh, the religion and how you know there was actually a little bit of reticence initially to to kind of I guess bring that up or 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 be more open about that. Did I capture all of that correctly? What what you know how how do you kind of equate those two things, or what was some of the reticence um, around that? It's a great question. I think it ultimately boiled down to um, having my own views, but not feeling like I should project my own views on someone else. And so as a leader of SEALs, is it my job to tell everybody what I think and and, and what I believe? And, and, and I just felt like there was a certain line that you didn't cross, uh, specifically around what you're bringing up, which is religion. And, um, and I think the world has, has matured a lot in the last decade of saying, look, everybody's got different views. Let's celebrate people's different views. And, and even today, like I, 
I do not believe that, that I should project my views on somebody else and somebody else should have my views. Now we might like have a great conversation. I'll tell you why I think what I think, uh, but, but it doesn't mean that you have to believe what I believe. And so I, I definitely through the theme of this in that meaning section was like, look, believe in something, you know, believe in something, whatever, whatever your value framework is, have a value framework. And um, ultimately, if you have no framework, then how do you measure yourself about having meaning and impact? And I don't mean to sound over-engineered and measure like in granular ways, but like, like my econ professor said in grad school, Mike, beware of fast trains to the wrong station. Let's know what station we're trying to get to and then, and then work backward from that. So ultimately, Alex, it was, you, you were spot on. I was a little bit reticent. Would I do it differently? Yeah, I, I would. I would be a little bit more open, but in ways that also emphasize that someone else's view doesn't have to be my view. In your capacity as chief digital transformation officer, you know, the kind of godfather of uh, disruptive innovation, the, the late Clay, Clay Christensen, as at a talk that he gave, I don't know, it must be eight years ago or something now. And he was saying the two greatest threats to America. And, and actually, the first one that he said, no one in the room would have thought. He said, it's actually the decline in religion in the United States. And he said, whoa, how, how is that the greatest threat? Uh, or it, it's in his top two. And what he was saying is that regardless of what religion or beliefs you have, what religion does a very good job of doing uh, for society is instilling a value system, Right. And so, you know, his point wasn't that you need to be religious. It was more about that. How, how do you get that value system, right? And he was saying, if you look back through history, when you have society that is more religious and therefore kind of has that internal guiding light, kind of that internal, hey, well, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. Um, and, it, and society kind of knows how to self-correct and, and how to course correct, right? Versus the other end of the spectrum, which is laws and rules. So when you have more values-driven or more laws and rules-driven society, as, as that pendulum swings more to the, to the laws, it, it never really ends up well for society, was his point. So that was, that was his explanation as to why you know, having a values-driven society, which religion does a very good job at helping to instill, is so important to kind of have ingrained into the fabric of any society, U.S. or anywhere. doesn't matter what religion, you believe this, that, right? But that, that kind of that compass and that guiding light, which, you know, religion does a very good job of, of helping to instill that set of principles. That seems to me kind of like the, the foundation for a lot of what you're talking about, right? Is like assuming you can have that, that value system, then you can figure out how to, how to live up to it and, and prescribe these never enough principles, right, to that. How did you get your value system? You know, how, how, did, how did you find what your, you know, what your guiding light was? Let's start with this. Clay Christensen was also a White House fellow in the program we talked about before, an incredible human being. The, the thing about having a value system is step, let's step back and, and with religion, like take the world's five major religions there is way more in common than not. You, you have concepts of peace, coexistence, forgiveness. Um, I could go on and on with, if you named 10 attributes, you'd find them across the five major religions. 
And, um, and so the point is like you're bringing up, who cares if I'm Christian or Bo- uh, Buddhist or Jewish or et cetera, et cetera. Like it, it just doesn't matter. Like it, it, it's what matters is the underlying value system. And if we have those values, we know where we're trying to get to. And we know when we've tried, when we've strayed off. And, and it's impossible to argue that those commonalities across the religion, the, the, the major religions are anything but good. And, um, and, and ultimately, I think that's what the world is about, is, is, is trying to live up to those standards and always being better and better. I grew up in a family of service. You know, my grandfather was, went to the Naval Academy in the class of 1940. He was at Pearl Harbor when it happened, December 7th, 1941. Just an incredible human and lived a life that was oriented more for others than self. He took on lots of risk for, um, for the nation. And, um, you know, ultimately, what I, what I saw was an example, an example of a human who knew uh, what life really was about, a wisdom, uh, a guidance. And um, so I, I never once, then my father also was a career, a career in the Navy. And so I, just living a life around these people, it's impossible to not you know, grow up and say, and see the, the underlying orientations. Now, like any parent or grandparent, it was like that no one forced any sort of path down my way and said, go do X or Y or Z. They said all the right things, go do what makes you happy, et cetera. And, and that's what ultimately led me to the path of ROTC at Holy Cross, because as the oldest of four, I thought, well, gosh, if I can get one of these ROTC scholarships, I'll have college for free. It'll leave some money for my younger three siblings and, and let them go get a great college education too. And so ultimately, ultimately it was the, the one word exa- uh, answer to your question is family. You've got uh, a, a daughter you talk about in the book and, and uh, I've got a little one on the way. Uh, any, any uh, pointers to uh, expecting parents about how to get that never enoughness in, in, in the offspring? It's a great question. And, you know, I just had one of those embarrassing Zoom moments. I just declined my daughter on my cell phone three times under the table. So, oh boy, it's the only phone call that comes through when it's on Do Not Disturb, my wife and my daughter. So uh, what I would say is patience and, and being the example, just like I talked about my grandfather or my father setting those examples. It's that that ultimately is what it what it is about is being patient and 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 kind to others i think that being a parent now of a 20 year old and and having seen 20 years of development uh they're watching more than we realize and they there's a modeling behavior that you may not recognize it at the different stages of of crawl walk run drive let's add drive after that and then college you know it just gets harder and harder The, the saying is you know, bigger kids, bigger problems, but no, it's also, it's also uh, lots and lots of love and so much fun. And so uh, I'd say if anything, it's, it's slowing down as somebody who left my daughter for six months or more, seven times because of my service, my wife and my daughter, obviously um, it, it's, it's really about, about quality of time together. Quantity is great, but focus also on the quality when you are together. A lot of us work really hard in life. We have some, there are people out there working two and three jobs to make ends meet. You get an hour or three hours at most with your kid. Like it's, do we, do we all wish we had more time? Of course, the thing we can, the thing we can control is quality. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and, and we'll, we'll wrap up here. Just one or two more questions. Hopefully those, you know, everything's okay with all those phone calls, but um, any thoughts on, you know, we've actually seen and we've talked a lot about it on the show, U.S. tech companies having 
reticence to work with the Department of Defense and, you know, kind of playing some funny games with some contracts, uh, you know, not kind of, I don't know, not not turning a friendly shoulder to um, to really kind of lean in and say, yeah, we want to help the U.S. government. And there's nothing wrong about that. Any perspectives on that from your your perch and, you know, you're, you're in the technology world? Absolutely. I will answer your question. But Alex, let me just back up one step. I talked about the White House Fellowship and I sound like I'm an, I'm an advertisement for it for, which I guess I am, but uh, it's a wonderful program. But the uh, one of those people we sat with was Madeleine Albright. And I got to say, Madam Secretary, what's if you could change one thing in your public service career, what was it? And by the way, I'm not breaking Chatham House rules here because I've heard her say this publicly, just to be clear. The, uh, she said, you know, when I was uh, standing in front of a media when we were in 1997, when we were bombing Slobodan Milosevic's troops, I got asked a question about bombing children. And instead of stopping to challenge the premise of the question, I went on and I answered the question. And what I should have done is stopped and challenged the premise of the question. So what I just want to like just say in there is like I personally have no knowledge of any of the funny business with contracts or anything like that. I think what you're referring to is, you know, is it going Amazon, Microsoft, cloud compute, et cetera? Who, which way is the government going? More like, you know, Google uh, canceling AI projects, you know, around weapon systems with the U.S. government, you know, uh, employees uh, protesting Google or other tech yep. monopolies using AI to incorporate into weapon systems because, you know, the U.S. government's going to abuse that technology, these, these kinds of things. It's a great topic. What it boils down to is trust in the government and um, responsibility to contribute and to change whatever you think is wrong. Like we talked about earlier, we're all going to have different views on what needs to be done. It's like the concept of of, um, of of privacy. How much privacy are we willing to give up for security and safety? Sure, you can challenge the premise of that and say, well, gosh, I don't actually think that giving up privacy leads to safety. That's a different problem. But in theory, you know, where do we land on that spectrum? We all have different views. And so how do we live in a world where some people don't want any facial recognition and, and some people say, no, do, you know, just have AI out on the streets. If that gets reduces crime by by one or or fifty percent, you know we all have these different views. So how do we reconcile that? Well, when we're in these large enterprises that are public companies, there I believe there is an obligation to um, think about what we're trying to achieve as a nation and get that balance right. There's not a black and white answer that says always do X or always do Y. It has to be a discussion and a cost benefit analysis to say. What are we gaining and what are we giving up? And, and, then, and, and then a fair process that determines whether you're going to go down path A or path B. When the process is good, and this is what I alluded to a little bit earlier, when the process is good, it's impossible to argue with the outcome. We might not like the outcome, but at least we get on the same page. Like right now, let me give a live example. As, as Chief Digital Transformation Officer at VMware, we're making a big decision right now about whether to use a, uh, an, an external product A or product B. And there's some people that really feel passionately about A and others that feel really passionate about B. So what I'm doing is I'm saying, hey, let's step back. And before we even have a conversation about A or B, let's think about the attributes that we need and what we're going to weigh and value most. So think about the, the those. And then if we separate out those attributes, then we can score A and we can score B against those attributes. 
So, so getting on the same page with the attributes helps the conversation be easier because now the only thing we can argue about is, well, where, how does A rank against some of those attributes or what does B weigh? And, and, and great, you can have a really rich conversation around that and ultimately come to some sort of a consensus. And then that process leads us to an answer that is almost irrefutable because we've agreed ahead of time what we're going to, to do. When I was at Bridgewater Associates, world's largest hedge fund, one of the things that I learned from a guy named Greg Jensen, one of the co-CIOs, incredible human being, amazingly intelligent and a great, just a, a good friend. Greg said, Mike, you know, uh, well, I remember him asking me a question and I said, here's what I think. And he said, Mike, no, I, no, I don't care what you think. Like, like, tell me what data are you looking at? What logic are you applying to that data? And then tell me where you think that takes you. Because then what I can do is I can argue or in my head think, oh, you're not looking at the right data. Or you can say, actually, I think your logic is wrong. Or, or you can say, hey, when you apply your logic to that data, it doesn't take you the same place. It takes me somewhere different than it took you. And you separate the different pieces of it. And so to your question, look, there's no, there's no black or white answer, but I would just fall back on a fair and good process. And that will lead us to the right thing that less people will be able to disagree with. Just like when, when, we're, when we ultimately choose a platform, we will have two kinds of people. We'll have people whose platform got chosen and then we will have people who, who, whose platform didn't get chosen, but they feel heard and understood and they'll be a part of the solution going forward. You got to trust the process, right? And in, in your experience, you know, in order for that process to be executed successfully, are, are there certain non-starters or there certain kind of gating requirements, right, that would prevent you from actually seeing the process through? You had the example uh, um, when you were you were getting all the nuclear officials in a room, right? And, and you didn't want them to run away to their boss and, and kind of defer uh, that they didn't have ownership, for example. So, you know, before starting the process, if, if you don't have all the stakeholders in the room, you know, then is it pointless? To, you're doing the process, but you don't have actually the right players at the table. Any kind of key gating requirements that need to be in place if you actually want to run the process correctly? Absolutely. So, so it starts with being aligned on a vision, being like, where, where are we trying to get to? And it's, it's funny when I walk into a leadership team in any company or any group and you say, what are you trying to achieve? Usually 50% of it is the same. And then you get drift around the margins. It takes a lot of work to keep teams aligned. And so the, when you can create that really tight alignment around where you're going, then that's step number one. So for, from a gating perspective, you have to have that alignment. Number two is how do you land on a strategy? How do you have the right people in the room like you just described? That's certainly a, a, a gate as well. But how do you get all the possible strategies out there and then think about risk adjusting those strategies? What steps can we take to minimize risk and only assume the risk worth assuming? It's kind of like, I don't know. Let me think of a quick example. It's like our investment portfolios. What do we do with our own, whatever, whatever wealth we do have? You're supposed to do one of two things. Look at how much risk you want to take and maximize the return, or look at how much return you want to achieve and only assume the minimum amount of risk to achieve that return. And so it's the same thing when you're looking at a strategy to achieve a vision. How do you assume the minimal risk to go achieve that vision? And then it's just the execution. And so do you have the right teams in place? Do you know your people well enough that you're working with and for and, and around 
in order to come together, coalesce and make that team that's going to go achieve that vision and outcome. Makes a ton of sense. And, uh, and, and you got to read the book to get the nitty gritty. What else can you leave us with today, Mike? What didn't I cover? Uh, you know, what else do you want to highlight kind of parting thoughts here? I would just say I greatly, I appreciate the, the opportunity to talk about the book, talk about never enough. Like I, I would say the one thing we didn't talk about is, is really asking for help. You know, I grew up in a world in the seals that was, that valued perfection. I'm 49 years old, turning 50 in a couple of days here. And in my first two decades in in this in life, you know, professional life, in my my time in the SEALs, early on, it was like you don't want to show any weakness to anybody else because that can be seen and perceived a certain way. I think the world has gotten healthily better at that. Still a long way to go. But uh, you know, if we look at at the invisible wounds of war or the invisible wounds of what we're dealing with now, visible and invisible, like COVID and so many different factors, economic disparity or inequities or justice, et cetera, how do we um, how do we uh, do a better job of say raising our hands and saying, "Hey, I need help." I think that you know, I spoke at a SEAL graduation a few years ago, and I said to the to the graduating class. Asking for help is a sign of strength, not weakness. So I really appreciate how we're, we're turning the corner on that as a world. And so in, the, in that spirit, in that vein, I'm, I'm absolutely comfortable asking for help, getting the book out there. Like we said, I'm donating all of my profits to a, to a charity to pay off mortgages for Gold Star families. And I feel so passionately about sharing these words and the, the meaning and the impact and trying to pull all, all of us up in different ways. And so I'm asking for help from people listening to say, hey, please help me get it out there because we're doing great things with the funds from Never Enough. And I just greatly appreciate the question, Alex. Mike, great to have you. The book is Never Enough, a Navy SEAL Commander on Living a Life of Excellence, Agility, and Meaning. This is Mike Hayes. Mike, thank you so much for joining us and um, wish you the best with the book and and, uh, hope to stay in touch. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Again, a great day together. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks, Mike. Well, that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Hope you enjoyed that great session with Mike Hayes uh, and, and the book Never Enough. And we'll talk to you soon.